From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. 50 years ago today, a group of four Aboriginal men planted a beach umbrella on the lawns of Parliament House as part of a protest over land rights. That action marked the beginning of the longest ever Indigenous land rights protest in history, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Camilla Roy Uralarai woman Frances Peters Little visited the Tent Embassy as a young high school student in 1974. Two decades later, she made a documentary about the four men who founded it and what they were fighting for. Today, Frances Peters Little on why land rights is so fundamental to the campaign for Indigenous justice. And a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, today's episode features the voices of deceased persons. It's Wednesday, January 26. Francis, hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good, nice to speak to you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we thought that the sound quality was better when I turned my camera off. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, let's get started. Okay. So, Francis, it has now been 50 years since the Tent Embassy was established. It's the longest-running Indigenous land rights protest in the world. Before we talk about the embassy itself, though, could you take me back and tell me about what was happening in Australia in the lead-up to its formation? Uh, well, in many ways, you've got, um, leading up to the tent, you've got the movement in the 50s, the 60s. There was the Freedom Rides, which was in 1965. The whole Freedom Ride is not so much for the white people. My deeper objective was for Aboriginal people to realise, hey, listen, second class is not good enough, you know? And then you, you had 1966 walk-off from Wave Hill Cattle Station in the Northern Territory. These Aboriginal stockmen are on strike. They walked off the job over a month ago. Which was led by Vincent Lingiari. I'm going to do with the land when I do something about it. If I get cattle, if I get a horse, I might grow a bit bigger, I might start something else more. Then in 1967, you then had the 1967 referendum where the vast majority of Australians voted in favour of Aboriginal rights. The referendum is on Saturday. They are waiting to see whether or not the white Australian will take with him as one people the dark Australian. But in the 70s, what was happening, there was a black power movement in the United States. The Black Panther Party are practical revolutionaries. We uh, identify with the armed struggle of colonised people throughout the world. And they very much had uh, influence over our protesters in Sydney. And so Sydney was a very politically active place. Since you're talking about Black Power, being a Black Power, you know, named and branded as a Black Power, my aims are to see that our people um, are given the justice. 1972, to me, is the year for Aboriginal justice. And what it underlined all of that was that it was ongoing concern for land rights. White Australian police against black Australian Aboriginals. Land had always been the basis of everything. So land was, you know, absolutely crucial to a lot of the movements from back in the 40s up until the 50s, 60s and 70s. Well, land rights uh, is not something one can separate from the Aboriginal psyche. 
And so basically on the day leading up to the 26th of January 1972, there were four Aboriginal people, Billy Craigie from Maury, Michael Anderson from Walbert, Bertie Williams was from Cowra, and Tony Curry from Tweed Heads. We decided to go down to Canberra and protest uh, by uh, going on a starvation diet to uh, try to capture uh, the Australia's attention to you know, the deplorable conditions. That, uh... And so they arrived down in Canberra in front of Old Parliament House. You got everything? Umbrella, manila folder, plastic laces. And erected a, a beach umbrella with manila folders and shoelaces. And we got down here and we went around what to... Uh, one of Charlie's mates, and uh, the best, they, best that they had was a big breech umbrella. Yeah, that was the start of it, really. The embassy really highlighted to me what sort of strength that Aboriginal people have got when we all come together in unity. And could you tell me a bit about your own experience at the tent embassy, Francis? How old were you when you first went there, and can you tell me about the types of things that you learnt just through spending time there? Well, I mean, I was still at high school in 72, but I did move to Canberra in 1974 and the 10 Embassy was still up on the ground floor and there were still a lot of the original protesters who would, you know, be camping out there in front of Old Parliament House. And so on the way to one of my classes, I, um, I said, oh, bugger this, I'm going to go and have a look at this 10 Embassy. And I wandered in and then I met up with a lot of cousins and <laughs> friends. The concept of land rights, as it was described to me back in those days by my cousin, Bob McLeod, was that he said, you know, do you believe in land rights? And I said, well, I don't know, what is it? And he said, oh, Francis, you know, do you believe that this land belongs to Aboriginal people? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, well, then don't you think we have a right to our own land? And kind of like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, state the obvious, you know. It was, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, and even though it does seem obvious to a lot of people, the Liberal government at the time wasn't that receptive to those demands. But things did start to change when Gough Whitlam was elected. He did respond to that campaign, didn't he? Well, I mean, the McMahon government goes in late 1972 and Whitlam gets voted in in 1972. and. One of the first things that Gough Whitlam was um, able to do was that he was able to grant land rights to the Vincent Lingiari and the people there at uh, Wave Hill. I solemnly hand to you these deeds as proof in Australian law that these lands belong to the Yurinji people. So that was an immediate response and it was an extraordinary symbolism. We're all friendly now. We're all made. We're all made. But, you know, of course, um, the problem was the mining companies and all that started to get concerned about the groundswell and needed to fight back and try and destroy what was being established in Canberra back then. Okay, can you... Tell me a bit more about that. To what extent did the interests of mining companies undermine the fight for land rights? Yeah, there had always been lobbyists, you know, against the Aboriginal land rights movement. And the most powerful, I suppose, that you could uh, look at would be the mining companies. And what 
eventually uh, emerged from out of that was the Western Mining Corporation in WA with Hugh Morgan decided to, you know, send out full-page ads and newspapers everywhere. They even had television uh, advertisements. Do you know that as a Western Australian, you're a part owner of your state? Do you think it's fair that less than 3% of our population should claim ownership of up to 50% of our No Western Australian should be made an intruder in their own state? You know, threatening the Australian public to say, if you allow for Aboriginal people to get land rights, you're going to lose this, you know, Aboriginal people are going to take over, you know, and people everywhere were getting all sort of paranoid about it, thinking that Aboriginal people wanted their backyards or their swimming pools or something. It was ridiculous. But still the, the, the lobby by the mining company, particularly in Western Australia, was way too powerful. And by that time, you, you've now got Bob Hawke, uh, who's coming up to his election. And it seemed for a while there that Bob Hawke might, in fact, you know, support act the national land rights movement. In February of 1985, the Minister Clyde Holding introduced his preferred national land rights model. But he got a little bit chicken at the end of it all because he could see that there were too many people who were going to vote against him. With the federal election fast approaching, Bob Hawke heeded the warning. When Brian Burke declared that no land rights legislation in his state would give Aborigines control over mining, the Prime Minister stood by him. Yeah, you can definitely say it was the Hawke government and the mining lobbyists. The federal government will not go ahead with national Aboriginal land rights. It was the death knell of land rights. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Francis, your documentary was made for the 20-year anniversary of the Tent Embassy, and that was in 1992. In that year, there was also this renewed push to reinvigorate the embassy itself, to renew protests there and to once again push for change. 1992, though, was also the year of the Mabo decision, where Eddie Mabo and, and others successfully argued against the Terranullius Declaration and, and won the right for First Nations people to claim ownership over their land. That case led to the establishment of native title. And so I just wonder what your thoughts are on the enduring legacy of the Mabo decision and on land rights more broadly. What Mabo did, what, you know, which was handed down in you know, 1992 in the High Court, was that it was able to smash the myth that on Captain Cook's arrival that he deemed Australia as terra nullius, which meant that Aboriginal people didn't exist and the continent of Australia was a empty land. But the problem with native title is that unlike land rights, native title is something that is given, you're given a title 
by the government. At any time, the, the government can take it off you. So when you get native title, which, you know, I've just been able to win my native title case, you can make a fire, you know, or you can chop down the wood or you can fish in the rivers. You know, you don't actually own that land. There is no proper way of being able to have independence uh, and a strong social and economic foothold. So native title is a pretty poor excuse for land rights. Mm. And so, Francis, when you think about land rights, the original intention, the aim of the movement, those protests at the tent embassy from 1970 to onwards, and then you look at where we are now, what do you think? Look, you know, I mean, in my film, Ten Embassy, you have Bobby Sykes, and she says this fantastic line that she offers. She says, That's the way the situation is going to be. Somebody's going to be stirring up our water, and when we swim around, be whirled around in it. You can't blame us that we look like we're whirling. You know, the government has been stirring us and stirring us and stirring us around forever and ever, and is it any wonder that we look like we're whirling? Until we get a Prime Minister who is committed to the concept of human rights and equality and the recognition of Indigenous people's rights. You know, one minute we're talking about reconciliation, next minute we're talking about a voice in Parliament, we're talking about treaties, we're talking about sovereignty, we're talking about self-determination, we're talking about, you know, all sorts, a myriad of, of ideas and things for our own, you know, development as a people. And it's not like it's getting anywhere. But one of the things that I'll say about the actual tent itself is that I think the tent is uh, extraordinary in that it is still an ongoing, probably the most longest-going, you know, protest movement uh, on Earth. I think its most powerful impact is that it reminds everybody that we continue to protest. If you didn't have the tent embassy there, where do you find that ongoing resistance? We have got so many urgent issues, but I think what the 10 Embassy does is it centres it all. The thing that I think is the most powerful part of it is that they're independent. They're not in a government bureaucracy. They're not speaking on behalf of the government. They're Aboriginal people who are there in your face in Canberra. And it is a focal point for us. You know, today we talk about one of the things that Aboriginal kids are being, you know, put into jails that at the age of 10. If you had Aboriginal people having their own land and their own rights and all those sorts of stuff, then let us deal with our kids. Let us deal with the legal problems that we're having. If we had our own terms of how prisons are, if we were, they were on our terms, then I don't think that we're going to be always behind this eight ball of waiting for the closing of the gap. And I think that that's what land offers you. And at the end of the day, you know, the thing that is always said is that it's Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. That will never, ever go away. It is. Francis, thank you so much for your time today and for talking to me about all of this. Thanks for having me.
Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, the federal government has negotiated to purchase the copyright for the Aboriginal flag for approximately $20 million. The deal was struck with the flag's artist, land rights activist Harold Thomas, who designed it in 1971. Use of the flag design will now follow the same protocols as the Australian national flag, where its use is free, but it must be treated with respect and dignity. And in New South Wales, pandemic restrictions have been extended for another month. Restrictions around mask wearing and venue capacity will now be in place until February 28. QR code check-ins are to remain compulsory at certain venues and dancing and singing at venues also remains banned. The New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, said that maintaining the restrictions was necessary as infections were set to increase when children returned to school. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.